Here at Doxaday Bloom, we are excited about making disciples who impact the city and nations. We hope that you enjoy today's message. Wow, friends. We are in September. Anyone excited about that? Come on. In Bloom, we have to rejoice in the small things like heat and good weather and all of those kind of stuff. Anyone excited with me? It's spring. It's a joyful season and the heavens are open and we're waiting for rain. Luckily, we have water. Um, we didn't have water this week. Anyone suffered with me? Now I can bath my kids again. It's going to be, it's going to go uh, much greater in our household this week. <laughs> Stinking little three boys of mine. Anyway, great stuff. I want to ask you a question. If you knew the end from the beginning, how would your life look different? What would change in your life if you knew the end from the beginning? Let me give you a few examples. Exams. <laughs> if you knew that you would pass with a distinction, you just need to start writing. How would you approach that exam? With peace, confidence, Anyone wants that gift tonight, just put up your hand graciously and say, I want to know the end from the beginning. <laughs> just think for a moment, a race, you know, that I'm running this race and I know from the beginning that I will win it. I just need to start. <laughs> Anyone? Where's the runners in this place? Oh, sorry. They're at home recovering from the week's race. Parachute. If... Have any one of you jumped out of a parachute lately? Oh, a jump with, a jump with a parachute out of a plane. Yeah, I must just rephrase that. Otherwise it's suicide, okay? <laughs> if you knew that you would have a safe landing, would you actually consider to jump out of an aeroplane, thanks Ferdi, with a parachute? Anyone? Come on. Yes, all the adrenaline junkies. Marriage. If you knew from the beginning that it's going to be good, you're going to be in love for the rest of your life, you're going to have beautiful kids, they're not going to have your husband's genes. I mean, it's going to be incredible. If you knew it from the beginning, how would you approach that? If you knew that the doctor would say that you're healthy, you're not sick, you would actually approach it in a different way. And that's the incredible thing that we are discovering in this series called All Things New, that in Revelation 21, Jesus is sitting on the throne and He's giving a promise, a de declaration over our lives. And He's saying, look, I am making all things new. And we said in the first week of this series that the gospel, we shouldn't get stuck just by saying that we are saved by grace and now we're waiting for heaven one day, we should actually see the full picture. We should see the end from the beginning. And what are we saying, friends, when we say God is making all things new? It's saying that God is not making all new things. He's making all things new. He's using the brokenness and the pain and the lostness that we see every day in our city He's using that in a certain sense to bring about final restoration in the end. We've got an incredible future ahead of us as Christians, as disciples of Jesus. 
He is making all things new. But the incredible thing is he wants you to be part of that process in the here and in the now. Every miracle that Jesus did was a declaration that he's making all things new. Every healing miracle, it was a declaration that they will become, they will come a day when no one will be sick or damaged or broken. Every feeding miracle, he said, no one will be hungry in the end. Every nature, miracle of nature was a declaration that one day nature and his creator and the stewards of that creation will be in harmony again. It's these declarations of God is making all things new. He's speaking about the new city in Revelation, the Jerusalem, the peace of God, the wholeness of God that will rule and that will reign in our lives in the end. And we are in that chapter already. I mean, we're not seeing the full picture of that, but we are starting to see glimpses of how God is making all things new. Isn't that incredible to know that this thing called the Christian life will end very good? <laughs> That's amazing. It gives us the courage and the faith and the endurance we need right now to carry on. But my question to you tonight is this. You see pain, brokenness, lostness every single day of your life. You don't have to drive far. You just need to walk out of your room and see it, <laughs> you know. My question is why are we sometimes so scared or why are we struggling to address the pain, lostness, and brokenness in our lives, in our city today? There are many answers to this question. One of them might be the fact that we are so overwhelmed with the magnitude of issues in our country at the moment, on the varsity, in your, in your specific family structure maybe, in your street, we are overwhelmed by the immense magnitude of what we are facing at the moment. Sometimes we are thinking that, yeah, someone else will do it, you know? The, uh, <laughs> yeah, we just, we're just going to wait for the government to step in and just sort things out. I mean, this, the guy after Cyril, that guy, oh, Messiah, he's going to come and sort out all our nonsense. We're waiting for someone else to do it. Or... We are stuck in a place where we think, well, I am too broken. I am too lost. I am too much in pain. I can't do anything about the pain and the brokenness. And you, you are almost, you are stuck in that space of, I can't do anything about it. And then in this series, we discover that Jesus makes it very simple. These feelings of overwhelmedness when it comes to the pain and the brokenness in our city, it starts very simple. It starts with an individual, someone that meets Jesus, he is made new in that moment and he becomes the vessel, the vehicle of this newness in his society, in his family structure, in his household, in his, you know, residence, whatever. But then it, it almost circles out from there. You know, we, we read the scripture about the demon-possessed guy in Decapolis. Jesus nudges his disciples and says, we're going to the other side, guys. We're leaving the Jewish country and we're now going to the other side. The pork-eating, ball worshiping Greek-influenced, you know, child-killing people. 
We're going, and the pork eating. Did I say that? I just want to clarify that. Pork eating, okay? And Jesus said, we're going to those people. And obviously the disciples are not very excited about it because they are Jewish. They can't mingle with these Gentiles. And I described the thing of Gentiles last week, I hope clearly, that a Gentile is someone that does not, you know, belong to the special people of God at that stage. So now Jesus is saying, let's go to the other side. We expect a warm welcome for Jesus. And what do we get? A deranged, demon-possessed guy running around, screaming out of the grave, tombstones, gravestones, tombstones. What happens? Jesus sets him free from the demons. They go into the pigs. 2,000 pigs commit suicide over the, you know, crans. <laughs> into the ocean. Bacon sails, you know, in their chops in, you know, <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> but it starts with one guy. I mean, they are so upset with Jesus because he messed up their whole economy with the pork prices. So they send him back. Leave this place, they ask. Jesus goes back. He leaves behind one guy who has been set free. And this guy started a ministry in the 10 cities of the capitalists. And when Jesus returns, 4,000 people gather to hear him speak. Through a demon-possessed man, 4,000 people are influenced by the gospel. Who are you to say God can't use you? Have you been demon-possessed lately? No, then you're fine. <laughs> The incredible thing that we read here is that it was in that miracle of the bread and fish, God has placed something in our hands. The little that he has placed in our hands, he can multiply that, hand it out to our city that is in need. And now I want to read a scripture just, you know, before Mark chapter 8. It's actually in, in chapter 7, Jesus is again going to the Decapolis. And listen to this. Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down Sidon, sorry, my Afrikaans background is kicking in there, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of Decapolis, pork eating, you know, okay? There, listen to this, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And listen to this, they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. What happened here, friends? There was a bunch of people that was touched by the ministry of the demon-possessed man. And they had faith in Jesus. And now not only did they have faith in Jesus, they are bringing their neighbors, their friends, the people that are closest to them. They are bringing them to Jesus and they are begging Jesus to set this man free. So we see two things here. Firstly, their faith in Christ is incredible. They believe that Jesus can help this friend of theirs. Secondly, you see the compassion of these people for their friends, for their neighbors. They bring them to Jesus. What happens here? It's a very interesting story. Jesus heals this guy by placing his finger. Christ um, said it this so beautifully. If you go and read it. Um, he said it this morning, Jesus took him uh, uh, from the crowd. He, he isolated him a bit because this is going to get personal. So then he placed his fingers in his ears, no personal space there. 
and he places his finger on his tongue. I mean, and bam, in that moment, he was healed. He was set free. He could speak. He could hear again. And listen to this, Mark chapter 7, verse 36 to 37. Jesus commanded them, these people that brought this friend or this neighbor of them, he commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. Stout, cease. Jesus is saying you're not supposed to tell anyone and they, they kept talking about what happened to their friend. They can't help themselves. He was set free. He couldn't talk. He couldn't hear, but now he can hear and talk. I mean, you can just hear the passion in these guys' lives. They saw it with their own eyes that Jesus touched my neighbor. I had faith for that neighbor. He touched him. And now I want to tell all of my other neighbors, come, you know, you crippled guy, come, come. You sick one, come. You mad one, come. Guy who struggles with anger, come. You alcoholic, come. Come and see. I have faith for you to come and see that Jesus can set you free. Sure, that's incredible, friends. Your personal faith is never for yourself. It's always for someone else as well. God gives you faith to believe in Him, to trust in Him, not only for you, but for your friend, for your neighbor, for your co-worker, for your demon-possessed family member. <laughs> okay, now you have a name in mind. Stop that. <laughs> I want to invite you next week, next weekend, we're starting with a series called Befriend. And it's all about this thing that we want to see our friends come to Jesus. And how do I share my faith with friends that are not of my faith or that are struggling with faith or that are far from God in this moment? And what we want to do in this series is we want to, we want to equip you as a follower of Jesus to share your faith on a friendship level without being weird, okay? <laughs> and everyone says, amen. We're not supposed to be weird people, we're just people. But we have a living Jesus inside of us and we wanna share that with others. So here's my, here's my deal with you. If you bring someone in the next four weeks to church, we've got a cappuccino special. Two cappuccinos for 20 rand, but you have to, you know, um, get yourself on the clear side that this person is actually not part of our church. Remember, we've got cameras, we've got photos on you. We know all of your names. So be truthful, okay? Be honest. You know, this is my friend. Let's drink a cappuccino together. So that's our Befriend series. And we want to get very practical with this. We want to be very practical on teaching you that sharing your faith is not a weird thing. It's supposed to be natural for a Christian to be able to do that, to share your faith with a neighbor. But before we dive into that series, we have to sort something out first. And this is what we're speaking about tonight. It's the attitude that we have in terms of our neighbors. What kind of attitude do you have when you think about your neighbor? And I'm not speaking the person that's staying right, uh, you know, alongside you. I'm speaking about every single person that you rub shoulders with every single day. The people that you live in close vicinity with. How do I actually share that? But first of all, what's my heart towards those people? 
And now when I say that, you're like, no, I love everyone. But let's see how Jesus addresses this. So in Luke chapter 10, you can open your Bible there or your app, um, your Uvision app, or um, if you still have a physical Bible, that's also incredible. You can open it to Luke chapter 10. What happens here, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and he asks him, Lord, how do I inherit eternal life? Now you have to understand that Pharisee is, He's a man of the law. He's, he's got God's word in his mind, you know. And Jesus responds in a very sarcastic way. He says, now you're a teacher of the law. You teach me. How do you eat, inherit eternal life? And this Pharisee is like, oh, okay. A question that I know. I can actually answer this. I've listened in class that day. And he says, Lord, I have the answer. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, do that then. But now this guy, we read in the Bible, he comes with an agenda to Jesus. He's not truthful when he asks this question. He's got an agenda. He wants to know who is my neighbor? Who, who classifies or who qualifies as being my neighbor? He actually wants it to make it very easy for himself to say, well, Jesus said, I don't have to love, you know, this group of people. And then Jesus does something incredibly interesting. And you will see now, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Obviously, Jesus is not answering him right away. Who's my neighbor? No, no, no. Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story in chapter 10, verse 30. Let's read it together. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, clothes, there we go, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So what happened here? If you go and read in the actual Greek translation, you would know that he was saying a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was robbed, okay? What happens here? The Jews had categories when it comes to who they should love. I mean, the basic male Jewish man would pray in the mornings something like this. Thank you, God, that I am not a woman, that I am not a Gentile, and that I am not a dog. Amen. Go and, go and research it for yourself. I mean, these guys had categories on where they stand in the circle of life, okay? They had a bit of a superiority issue. And what Jesus is doing here is actually addressing this issue by saying a Jewish man got robbed. You see, when you think about your neighbor, you will think very differently, who's my neighbor? If you are the person lying on the ground stabbed and robbed. I mean, you would want anyone to help you if you lie there. You won't have categories in your mind, you know, who's my neighbor? Like anyone who can just help me up and save my life. You know, these guys are started to think, okay, what is Jesus, Jesus aiming at here that he's actually using the Jewish guy and not some other guy, you know? Here's the crazy thing, friends. When you are in need, it's very easy to let all of your categories go. But when you are the person that are 
called for in terms of helping the person next to you, all of a sudden you have categories. You have these lists of people, okay, no, no, I won't help that one, you know. I won't be available to that person. And what we see in this scripture is so profound. There are three categories or three people in the story that actually Jesus is trying to reveal something in our hearts. The first individual or group of people that we see here, they are the robbers. What is the attitude of a robber? It's the following. What you have is mine and I'm going to take it. What you have is mine and I'm going to take it. So you have to understand Jericho and Jerusalem was about 17 kilometers apart from, and there was a 1,500 drop, a valley between these two cities. So obviously the robbers waited there at the bottom of the valley until this Jewish guy went through and then, oops, they robbed him there in the night, you know. Because they had this idea that what he has is mine. I'm going to take it. You see, that is a kind of an attitude when it comes to my neighbor, the people around me. It's, a, it's an attitude of entitlement. It's an attitude to say, you know, the world owes me something. I am a person that receives special treatment. Maybe your parents raised you that way. You know, you got everything you wanted. They did everything for you and now you think the world must do that as well. Or your, you know, your, um, your boss must treat you that way. That's a sense of entitlement. That what you have, I am entitled to that. That's where all of the isms comes from. Racism, sexism, name it. All the isms comes from this single idea that I am superior to other people and that I am entitled to what they have. That's the first attitude when it comes to my neighbor. You know, what can I get out of this city? You know, you came to Bloom, and like I said last week, you actually wanted to be in Stellenbosch, but now you're in Bloom, and now you're just thinking, what can I get out of the city, you know? Show me all of the good places, show me all of the stuff. I just want to use what I have, consume what this city need, uh, you know, offers me, and then I'm going to leave one day and hopefully, well, they'll carry on with their water problems and stuff, okay? That is the attitude of a robber. What you have is mine, I'm going to take it. But there's a second group of people in this story. It's the Levites and the priests. Listen to this, Luke chapter 10, verse 31 to 32. It says the following. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. What is Jesus getting at here? He's saying the pastor and the worship leader is passing the scene where the guy, you know, He's lying in his own blood. Like Yaku and I, I mean, we're going down that same road. And what happens? I see the mess and I think to myself, let's just pass that. Then Yaku comes along and he does the same thing. I mean, I can see the like disappointment in your faces. You're like, come on, you are paid to do this. You're paid to help these people. <laughs> let me just 
clarify what's happening here. In the Jewish mind, this would make perfect sense. Why? You see, Jericho was almost like Hartenbos in South Africa. Hartenbos is the place where you go to, if you don't know, for holiday. Especially if you live in Bloom. We can just make a church there over the holidays and we'll see all of you there. Okay. <laughs> it was the place of recreation. It was a holiday destination. So the priest obviously did all of his slaughtering and duties and covering the sins of all the people. And the Levite was leading worship on that side. And I, I mean, they, they needed a break. I don't know why they went on the same day because who would actually run the church. But anyway... So these guys are going on holiday. I mean, I can't tell you how many times in my journey in ministry, as we were driving on the N1, I got a phone call or a message from someone in the church that says, my husband just left me. <laughs> can you help? And I'm like, yes, in 800 kilometers time, we can speak. <laughs> it happens. This is exactly what happens here. They were on their way to rest. Now they have to deal with this. And I mean, in the Jewish law, if you would touch someone that is bleeding, you would be unclean for seven days. So you had to go and wash yourself continuously at the holiday destination. Apart from all your family and friends, you have to isolate like in COVID times when you touch a person like that. So in the Jewish mind, this made perfect sense. I mean, Leave the worship leader and the pastor. They are going on holiday. They're not going to attend to this right now. Leave them. <laughs> That's crazy, friends. Do you know what, why? That is maybe, and like I said, this is not going to be an easy sermon, so settle in, okay? I think that is sometimes the attitude of the church, globally. We are so busy with our own thing that we forget there's a world out there that needs the church. We're so busy with our, you know, little click on the inside, loving one another and spending time with people and all of those incredible things that we forget that we become irrelevant to the world. I mean, if you just look at the history of denominations in South Africa and all over the world, the churches that are not focused on the mission of Jesus, they decline. They are shrinking at this moment. Why? They become irrelevant to a world in need. We face a pandemic. We face issues every day and the world just say, uh, the church to say, you know, just come to us. Come and, you know, be just on the inside and we'll be safe and you, you're going to be, you know, excluded from all the pain and the brokenness. No, friends, we are called to be in the world, to bring the goodness of Jesus to the world. We're missing it as a church if we're only busy with our own little thing and forgetting that God has placed us on mission with Him in this world. You see, the church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. Big difference. God has placed a church on this earth to forward His mission on this planet. And sometimes we miss that. We are a channel of His grace. We are a channel of His love. We need to be focused not on what, what is happening inside. We need to be focused on what's happening there. We need to be a church for the city. Then there's a third person in this story. It's the story of the Samaritan. 
verse 33 to 37. Just take a deep breath. I'm not, I'm not rasping with you, okay? <laughs> I'm speaking to myself here. This is a reminder for Eugene tonight. Verse 33 to 37. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. How beautiful. Jesus is redefining how we should look at our neighbors. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came to the man. He did not avoid him. He did not wait for someone else to come. He did not ask the man to come to him. That we do sometimes in church. Just come to us. He came where the man was. And when he saw him, see, we need to see people sometimes. We, we overlook the pain when we look at people sometimes. He saw him for who he was. And when he saw him, listen to this, he took pity on him. The Bible uses a very, very, very intense word here when he says he took pity on him. It's the word intense compassion. Actually, if you go and study the actual Greek word there, it means the having pain in your stomach because of the, the pain that you see in the other person. The uncomfortable pain and agony of that person is translated into your body. You feel the pain in your stomach. Have you ever experienced something like that? You see something and it disturbs you to the very core of who you are. Let me tell you a moment like that in my week. So Monday, there was also a person left on the sidewalk two kilometers away from this church. Can you imagine that? A three-month-old baby girl was left on the sidewalk in Wilhof this week on Monday. You woke up, you went to the varsity or your workspace. That little girl was abandoned the night before by her parents or her mother on the sidewalk. Three month, months old. Social worker contacted us. And in that moment, I, I thanked God because we have a facility called Alpizo Baby Home. I don't know if you know that. But in Doxodeo, we have a home for babies that you are a part of. If you contribute to our generosity fund every month, you are part of this vision. I went there on Tuesday and again, we saw all of the little kids. I mean, some of them, when I came in, they were running away because they were so abused by male figures that they go and hide when they see me. But I came to the little bed of that three-month-old baby. Friends, I have a boy that's four months old. And when I saw that little girl there, I thought to myself, what in the world would be so wrong in a person's life to, to just abandon that small little kid. 
My heart broke. I had that, that deep sense of compassion in my heart when I saw that little girl there. I phoned my wife and said, please don't come here because you'll just take the baby home and we've got enough of our own. Thank you. And I thought to myself, Jesus, why, why am I feeling so compassionate about this little girl? Because obviously I have my own kids and I can't imagine doing that to one of my boys. But then I asked myself, why, why don't I have that kind of compassion with just people that I come across every single day of my life? They are also in pain. They are also rejected. They are also neglected, thrown away by society and other people and their families. And I prayed in that moment, God, give me that kind of compassion again. Break my heart for every person, not just that little girl. What happened here was so incredible. This guy took pity on him and he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine, which was actually a crazy medicinal combo if you want to treat wounds. Then he put the man on his donkey, his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. That's crazy. The Samaritan had to suffer for about 17 kilometers to the other city, walk very slowly, with this guy on the donkey. He was hurt so intensely and he suffered. He was uncomfortable. He walked with this man and he took care of him. He booked him into an inn. The next day, he took out two denarii, two coins and gave it to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. You see, he could have just tended to his wounds and just left him there for an ambulance to come by. But this guy, man, you know, he went the full way. He committed the whole way. And he said to the innkeeper, listen to this. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Jesus is painting a picture. What does it look like when we take care of our neighbors? When we love the people around us, we go the whole journey. We commit the whole journey. I have deep respect for a guy like Mr. Beast. Any followers here? Come on. Yes, Mr. Beast. I mean, incredible. He just gives money to strangers and to his friends and just helps people. But I'm always thinking to myself, are you willing to take the long road? Are you willing to commit all the way? Go back, you know. And luckily he does that. <laughs> I'm not bashing Mr. Beast. Don't worry. I'm actually a big fan. But the crazy thing is, Jesus is actually putting this on a whole nother level. He's saying, walk the whole road with that person. And then Jesus asked them, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And everyone with one voice said, the guy who had mercy on him. Not the robbers, not the Levite, not the priest. The Samaritan, the pork-eating 
Greek-influenced bowl-worshipping guy because he had pity on him, that deep sense of compassion. My friend, I want to look you in the eye tonight and ask you, where's your heart? And I'm really not into guilt-tripping, so please don't hear that tonight. If you feel guilty, shake it off. I'm not trying to guilt-trip you. I'm trying to, to show you the love of Christ for you. You see, but ultimately, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He came for you when you were lying in your own blood. He came for you where you were at your worst, when you were still an, an enemy of God. He came. He did not walk past you. He did not skip over. He was not the priest. He was not the Levite. He was the Samaritan. He took you from death and brokenness and brought you into new life. He raised you to life. And he's committed all the way. Whatever it costs, Jesus is committed to walk the road with you. He's the good Samaritan. See, when we, when we grasp that kind of compassion for me, it's actually easier to extend that to another person. If you grasp Jesus' compassion for you, you will be able to extend it to others. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Make sure that you get connected to this family on mission by joining us at one of our Sunday services.